On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about fraud because apparently there are an awful lot of Canadians that are ripping off the system for these CERB payments. What should happen to those people? It doesn't seem like it's sufficient to just say pay it back. You're taking advantage at the com- at the country's weakest time. What should be done? We'll discuss. Uh, we're also going to talk about the settlement between the Canadian Hockey League, junior hockey players around the country, and the players who had sued a class action lawsuit to get payment, arguing they are not just student athletes, they are employees of the teams. We'll talk about what this means, what the settlement means. And we're going to talk about podcasts because Joe Rogan, who you may know from Fear Factor or from the UFC or whatever, just signed a $100 million contract, a hundred times what Dr. Evil got in those movies, a hundred million dollar contract to do a podcast. Has the podcast world just changed under our feet? This used to be something innocent and amateurish. Not anymore. We'll talk about it all. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. So we can have a debate all day long here about the government, the federal government's response to COVID. And I'm not going to talk right now about the medical side of things because that's a different issue. And I think there are plenty of difficult questions that the people in charge are going to have to answer when this whole thing is over. Because it looks like almost, not every position, that's an exaggeration, but many positions that have been taken have been then turned around and backtracked on and leaves you to wonder what's believable, what isn't. But that's a discussion for another day. I want to talk right now about the other side of it, the economic side of it, because we know that in these circumstances, the federal government decided to jump in and has spent billions, billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in the last month and a half, two months to try and help out. Now, again, we can have a discussion and a fair discussion about whether or not these plans have been done right. I think the intention has been correct for sure. And in a lot of these things, I think you can say, yeah, that, that, yeah, that needed to happen or that, that was a good idea. I may not agree exactly with everything, but I can see where that's coming from. I think we can, most of us can come to some form of agreement that something had to be done. I mean, you could, you couldn't just sit back and do nothing. We'd have complete destruction right now. That said, we may have complete destruction down the road, but we had to do something here though is where things go off the rails. And here's where I want to hear from you. Because this CERB program that many people are using, many people using it because this is the one where you get paid up to $2,000 a month for four months if you have lost your job or if you are working less than half your hours. And it's not because you quit, but because your job disappeared, basically. And the program was designed to keep people on their feet. They could eat, they could pay some bills, um, you know, the, the intention I think is right. Whether the execution is perfect, because we'll get to that in a second. The intention I think is, is fine. And here's where the problem comes though. And we talked about this last week. So a government memo instructed bureaucrats to not raise any red flags on people who apply for this, who look like the claim may be problematic. And again, there are parts of this where you say, okay, I get where they're coming from. You don't want everything to be tied up in red tape. So people who legitimately have to get this money to survive are waiting on it. Let's just get the money out there. But where this thing has the blip in my mind 
is that a bureaucrat who was filling out these applications, if they found somebody who they believed had a problematic application, could have simply sent an email to some email site so that at the end of all this, we could go back, they could go back and investigate the ones that are suspicious. Because you know, as well as I do, that the government can say all it wants that at the end of this whole thing, we're going to go back and investigate everybody we gave money to, to make sure they did it fairly. They took it fairly. Come on, come on. We don't have the bureaucrats to do that. And this is not a five minute process. You'd be talking about days and days for each investigation. And then if you charge someone, then you're going to have days and thousands of dollars to go to court and everything else. I mean, come on, this is, this is a mess that part of it. But here's what I want to hear from you about, because the statistic, let me try that word again, Statistics Canada, sometimes that just doesn't want to come out. Statistics Canada says that as of April 18th, that's when they did, I guess, their last numbers, 3 million people had lost their jobs. Another two and a half million were working fewer than half their normal hours. And there was another 500,000 that factor in. Five and a half million Canadians by Statistics Canada's numbers, would have been eligible for the CERB. This is according to the National Post. 5.5 million would have been uh, able to get CERB. How many people have applied? How many claims have been sent out? How many checks have been sent out? 6.7 million. 1.2 million more claims have been filed and checks sent out than people who, according to the Statistics Canada, are eligible. And so we can debate all we want about whether or not the government program is good or not. My bigger issue is, and I'm a personal responsibility guy, if you are looking at the situation right now, you are seeing that it is chaos in a sense. You're seeing that we're in troubled times and you see an opportunity to go and rip off the government and by extension, rip off the taxpayers. To me, you are absolute, unfiltered, unmitigated scum. If you are needing this money and you're eligible for it, 100% go and get it. That's totally fair. That's totally legit. If you are milking the system and knowing you're taking something that isn't yours, that is going to cost us money, you are a jerk. You're an idiot. You're scum. You don't, I don't have words because these are very difficult times and we don't need those people jumping in. But I want to know when they do at the end of this, when they do start to do some investigations, because you know, they'll do some just to put on a good face. What, and we find people who did take advantage. What should the penalty be? I want to hear from you because I don't believe that merely paying the money back that was taken is nearly sufficient. Not now. This is, these are desperate times and you have taken advantage of a system in desperate times. What should the penalty be for people who have abused the system now? I think it should be unbelievably harsh way over the top harsh, harsher than you would get under any other normal circumstance. But I want to hear from you. 905-645-3221 or star 9900. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. It appears that an awful lot of people, and it's it's discouraging in this country because you like to think Canadians are above this stuff, but it looks like, and maybe I'm too naive by saying that because you throw free money in front of people and people are going to take it. But it looks like 
based on the numbers from Statistics Canada and based on the numbers from how many people are applying for this CERB, the emergency benefit that is supposed to be used, it's supposed to be there as a safety net for people who truly need it. And as I said a moment ago, Who's going to argue with that? If these people are not eating and this money is this difference between not eating or eating, who's going to stand in the way? That's not the issue here. But it appears that an awful lot of Canadians, based on StatsCan's numbers, are milking the system. According to their numbers, as many as 1.2 million, originally the number that the experts were predicting was in the neighborhood of 200,000. 200,000 was a lot. We could be looking at 1.2 million according to these numbers. Now, of course, there's going to be some misunderstandings in the numbers. So, you know, whatever. Let's take it down to a million. I don't know. What do you do with the people who are absolutely in a moment of crisis when the government is sending money out to try and get it to people quickly so that people now understand where the flaw and the hole and the crack in the system is say, Hey, free money. I'm taking mine, even though they're not eligible for it. I got no issues with the people who are eligible, none, but the people who know they're abusing the system, what's the appropriate punishment for them? Because as I said before the break, I don't believe for a moment that simply tracking them down and telling them they have to pay the money back or even telling them they have to pay the money back with interest, not nearly good enough, not nearly good enough because this to me, there's always crime and there's always crime that seems worse when the person who you are committing the crime against is down. It's the old line about stealing from a baby. That's why stealing from a baby is worse than seemingly stealing from an adult. The baby is helpless. Well, right now, I don't know if we're helpless in this country. We're close to it though, like in the rest of the world because of everything that's going on. And if you are stealing from us now, you are ridiculous. And that's the nicest possible way of saying it. What should we have done? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Let me tell you one more thing before I tell you what else, what, what, what I, where I would start. If in fact it's 1.2 million people, and I think that number will be high, but still, if it's 1.2 million, just so you know the extent of what we are potentially throwing away in defrauded money and why this matters, you get $2,000 over four months. If it's 1.2 million people, that's almost $10 billion of money that shouldn't be going out, that's going out. $10 billion. That was roughly supposed to be what our national deficit was going to be when Trudeau was elected. Remember that? $10 billion? And at that time, $10 billion seemed like a stunning amount of money. Well, now it doesn't seem like anything. But $10 billion is $10 billion. And let's even shave that down by half. Let's say it's only $600,000 only. We're still talking about $5 billion that people apparently have decided is theirs they're entitled to it, even though they're not entitled to it. That's sickening. That is sickening. And during the break, Ben was talking to me, Ben, who's operating the show. He's pressing all the buttons and keeping us going. Ben was saying, well, what about people who financially don't really need the money? They're reasonably well enough off, but they're, they lost their job or they qualify technically. Yeah. You know what? That's for them. That's not who I'm talking about. That's your moral decision to make, but legally you've done nothing that the law does not permit you to do. Do I love it? No, but you are not doing anything technically wrong. You're not doing anything legally wrong. 
probably if you are doing okay, you've probably paid loads of taxes. So when something comes back to you that way, okay, legally. But the idea that some people just see an an opportunity and have said, I'm going to jump in and I am going to take advantage of this and I'm going to grab the money while I can because it's free dough. You know, first of all, we're not going to put them in prison because we're just not. There is a movement afoot to put fewer people in prison, not more people in prison. But what if we were to announce today that if you are caught and we're going to do random checks because we can't check everyone. We're going to do random checks at the end of this. And if you're caught, we're coming after your house or we're coming after all your property or whatever else. We are going to come after you so hard for taking advantage of this. We're going to garnish e garnish your salary for the next 20 years. We're going to come with fines that are so heavy. See, that's what I'd like to see the government do right now. The government, as much as we have a government right now, because it's not really operating because they're not sitting in the House of Commons, pass a law that says anyone caught ripping this system off at our time of weakness receives a first offense minimum $100,000 fine. And if you can't pay it off at once, you'll pay it off over the next 20 or 25 or 50 years. You're going to pay. That's the kind of thing that we should be doing here because we are a country that is being kind and compassionate and generous with people to make sure they're okay. And if you are ripping off the country, which again is not the country, it's the taxpayers of the country, it's you and me and everyone listening who's not doing this, we're giving our money so that you can turn around and say, I'm going to take your money. (laughs) You're a sucker. We got to come down like a ton of bricks on those people. Will we? I don't know. Should we? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And if you're one of those people who is ripping off the system right now, absolutely shame on you. You are scum. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There are so many things going on right now that a story that came out last week may have slid under the radar for you. And it may have also slid under the radar because you may or may not be a big sports fan. This is kind of a sports story. I mean, it's it's a sports story in the same way Field of Dreams is a baseball movie. The, the, the surroundings involve sports. The story itself, it's about people. And what the story is, is last week, the Canadian Hockey League, that is the three leagues across Canada. So the Ontario Hockey League here with the Hamilton Bulldogs, the Western Hockey League and the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League settled with its players, there were a group of players that had filed suit against them, against it. Uh, it was a six-year-long legal battle over pay. And it essentially came down to a question of, are junior hockey players employees of a team, or are they amateurs who are learning a craft and therefore not to be paid? Now, as I understand it, and my next guest will clarify all the things that uh, that I may screw up here, but as I understand it, the deal will see the 60 teams across the country pay players $30 million by October to be divvied up among all the members of the class action. And then they will ensure, the leagues will ensure that current and future players will be paid at least a, the minimum wage going forward. But what does this mean? for hockey, for kids, for other sports. Dr. Simon Black is an assistant professor of labor studies at Brock University. He joins us now. Dr. Black, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate it. Hi, thanks for having me on. So, I mean, really, um, before we dive into the other part of this, I mean, I think it really does come down, and I'm sure this lawsuit came down to a a debate about whether these athletes are employees of a team 
or student athletes who are essentially getting their apprenticeship paid for by the franchise. How do we sort that out? Yeah, well, you know, what the CHL has always claimed is that these players, as you say, are, are quote-unquote amateur student athletes. Now, that, that, that concept of an amateur student athlete has no standing under the law. This is a, a kind of myth that was imported from the NCAA. The NCAA started using the, the, the term in 1954, and the reason they did it is because um, athletes, university athletes, were starting to press their demands, uh, including uh, coverage under uh, workers' compensation if they were if they were injured or suffered uh, an injury as they were playing a game. So the NCAA used this term of amateur student athlete really to avoid any responsibilities it had under the law, under labor laws, relevant labor laws, to uh, employees of the university who were the athletes who were on the field or uh, on the basketball courts. Um, so, you know, this, this lawsuit, which was launched, as you mentioned, back in 2014, the, the crux of the, of the issue was whether uh, major junior hockey players were employees and therefore subject to employment standards legis- legislation, the basic minimum uh, labor protections protecting all workers in provinces like Ontario. And I think we can, although the league will be, uh, will not admit this, I think the fact that the CHL did eventually settle um, indicates that they were, uh, they were on the losing side of, of, this, uh, of this court case. Now, there has been, and, and I, don't even have the, I don't have the numbers in front of me, and it's a small number, but there has been pay to the players along the way. It's, it's, again, it's a, it's a small amount that they would get. And many of them, or a fair number or some number, have received university scholarships. So has that, does that count as fair pay when you, when you say, we're going to pay for you for every year you play in the league, you get a year of university paid for by us. Does that not count as payment? No, it doesn't count as payment under the law. So let's, let's take these players and uh, their ages 16 up to 20. Some, some players are 21 years old. Some are 15, um, but mainly between the ages of 16 and 20. Let's take them, say their workplace isn't the hockey rink. Say their workplace is a garden center and an ice cream store, wherever it may be. And we say that we're not going to uh, give you basic protections under the law, like owed minimum wage or overtime pay, holiday pay, vacation pay, as all workers in the province of Ontario have a right to. Instead, we're going to pay for your room and board, and we're going to give you the promise of uh, an education package or a scholarship at the end of uh, your career uh, at, this, at this workplace, at this garden center, at this ice cream store. I mean, most people would probably be up in arms about this, saying, well, you know, if these, if these workers are workers under the law of their employees, then they have certain rights and protections under the law. The, the, the issue is with the public, uh, I think a lot of people, when they think about the arena as being a workplace, um, they don't think of it like that. And therefore, they don't think of these hockey players who are making money for these teams, like the Bulldogs, uh, they don't think of them as workers or as employees of their clubs. Uh, and that, that's what was really uh, in question with this, with this lawsuit. And it's not only the lawsuit. There's been attempts to uh, organize a major junior hockey players union. There's been a couple of attempts to form a players association. So there's been other efforts to ensure that these players have their rights respected as, uh, as workers and as employees of their club. Where this gets tricky, though, I would think, and you, you work at Brock University, so you're around student-athletes 
Is this not a similar story? Universities give a scholarship or give some money to athletes to come and play there, but they don't pay them to play for university. What you get in exchange for playing is part of your university paid for. Where is the difference? Right. Well, these players that, uh, you know, that play for a, a, a player who plays hockey for Brock University is, is clearly an amateur. Um, the NCAA uh, considers players in the CHL, they consider the CHL to be a professional league. So even by the NCAA standards, the Canadian Hockey League is a professional hockey league. Uh, it's not an amateur league. They don't consider it to be amateur. And when you look at the various tests under the law, which determines whether someone is an employee or whether they're an independent contractor or a dependent contractor, uh, it was clear in the case of the CHL that these uh, these young players, these young athletes are in fact employees. And therefore, they have certain rights under the law as employees. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking with Dr. Simon Black from Brock University, who's an assistant professor of labor studies, about the settlement last week between the Canadian Hockey League, which represents the three leagues, Ontario Hockey League, Western Hockey League, and Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, and the players. And it's a $30 million settlement that'll be paid to the members of the class action, but it also means that going forward, players will be paid a minimum wage, but paid. And... Dr. Black, here's where this thing gets really now interesting and potentially really complicated. Going forward, now that uh, players, because as I read it, it says players will be paid a minimum, uh, at least a minimum wage. Is it required, is it essential now that all players in this league or in these leagues be treated equally and paid equally? No, it's not. And what happened, one of the reasons this uh this court case took so long to kind of wrap up this class action was that while it was going on, the president of the CHL, David Branch, uh, really engaged in a, a cross-country tour, going to provincial capitals in provinces where um, CHL teams uh, operate, and trying to convince uh, premiers, provincial governments, to exempt major junior hockey, uh, major junior hockey players from being subject to employment standards legislation. And so he was successful uh, in convincing the last province to hold out uh, the Alberta government, which um, switched governments in that six-year period. We went from an NDP government, which is usually considered more pro-labor in terms of its political leanings, and a conservative government came into power there, and they exempted major junior hockey players from coverage under the basic uh, labor standards that are afforded to all workers. Um, so now that that's happened, the CHL doesn't have any obligation to treat its uh, treat its workers, treat major junior hockey players uh, as employees under the law. Okay, and the reason exempted. Well, and the reason I ask if it's important to, or if it's required to treat everyone equally is I think a lot of people listening who probably didn't even know about the story would say, yeah, sure, those kids probably should be paid something because they are bringing in money for the league and they are raising revenue and all the rest. But now what happens when you've got a team like the London Knights that is very rich, that that does very well, that sells out 10,000 or 11,000 seats a game, and you have other places like the Peterborough Peets or the Owen Sound uh, team or whatever else who... Now, if it's a case where London can say, fine, we're going to pay our players triple what you get. Well, now every player is going to want to play for London and is going to tell Owen Sound and Peterborough, don't draft me. I'm not coming. 
Yeah, and there's, I guess that's a question for the league in terms of how it operates. You know, the NHL has always dealt, dealt with these kind of questions in terms of the unevenness of the market um, through revenue sharing. Um, the CHL uh, and its operating clubs have thus far um, thought that to be a bad idea. So, I mean, it's a question for, for the, uh, the commissioner of the league, for David Branch, and uh, for the owners of the clubs, um, why they think revenue sharing uh, is unreasonable, given that in all other respects, they consider themselves to be um, a professional league, mm. although they don't say that out loud. I mean, these are for-profit businesses. Like you said, some of them do very well, like the London Knights. Others, like Peterborough, are struggling. But, you know, the CHL itself... It's been trying to convince us that these players are amateur athletes and, and not paid professionals. But even you know, even when they went to apply for a trademark with the Canadian Intellectual Property Office back in 2017, they themselves called them a professional league. So it's you have this situation where they say these players are amateur student athletes, but in all other respects, the league operates like a professional hockey league. And it's it's one of these remarkable situations where you go down to the rink on a Saturday night and everyone from the GM to the coaches down to the hot dog sellers and the Zamboni is covered under labor laws and basic uh, employment protections like the right to a minimum wage. And yet these players are going to be left in the lurch and, and, and are excluded from that. So let me throw one more at you. Questions. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry, let me throw one more at you. We only have a couple of minute and a half or so left here. And I've long thought this about, say, NCAA football, so college football down in the States. And, the, and you get players who come out of NCAA, and there's always been the argument, should they be paid? Because they bring in a lot of money for university. And my argument has been, well, some of those guys are going to go on to the NFL and make millions and millions and millions. And I'm not sure that, I mean, to me, in a sense, their colleges, they're, they, they've been given the opportunity to train and to learn, and that's opened the door for them. But for the other players for whom their career ends at the end of college, it would make sense that they've helped raise money for the university. They get a lump sum on their way out the door. Could something like that ever be done where it says, you know what, if you get drafted into the NHL from the OHL, um, you're not going to get any money. But for all the rest of you who go on and that's the end of your career, you get a lump sum pay when you walk out the door and thank you for playing. That, that could happen. I mean, that would maybe bring a modicum of justice uh, to the players. The, the, the problem now is because they've been, because players, the CHLs effectively lobbied provincial governments to exempt these players from coverage under, under, under the labor law, under employment standards legislation, the league is essentially self-regulating. So what it does from here on in, um, is it going to make positive reforms, necessary reforms to ensure that, that players are treated uh, well, um, I don't know. It's an open question. It seems we're like gonna this, see. this this league only responds to pressure on it, whether it be a union drive or a class action lawsuit, or hopefully when professional hockey players in the NHL and the, the Players Association there start speaking up and speaking out for a very vulnerable group of young players, major junior hockey players, who are trying to make it to the big leagues. And uh, they need some support, and they need the, they need the public as well to, to advocate for them. Fascinating discussion, fascinating case. Uh, Dr. Simon Black, Associate, or Assistant Professor of Labor Studies at Brock University. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. No, thanks for having me on, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, when we've had my next guest on in the past, and we've had him a number of times because we love what he does and he does a fantastic job every time he comes on here. We have talked about television. We have talked about movies. 
we have talked about music. We have talked about various other forms of pop culture, but we've never talked about what we're going to talk about tonight because I frankly never imagined that this topic would ever amount to anything worthy of a great deal of discussion. The person I'm talking about is Robert Thompson, who is the director of the Blair Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. The subject is podcasts. Uh, Robert, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate you jumping on and joining us. Always fun. Thank you. So this week it was announced, and I, I, I almost fell out of my chair when I saw this. This week it was announced that Joe Rogan, now for people who don't know who Joe Rogan is, he's the guy who hosts UFC matches outside the cage. And he may be more familiar to people as the guy who used to host Fear Factor and got people to like drink goat urine or whatever else for kicks. Um, he has been signed to a $100 million deal by Spotify to continue his podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. $100 million. Robert, am I, am I behind the curve or is that shocking that someone would get that much for a podcast? Well, uh, certainly podcasts have been uh, emerging for a long time. Uh, you could Some form of them goes back to the 80s. Matter of fact, you could make the argument that podcasts are doing what radio was doing, series uh, formats, uh, all different genres and everything, uh, back in the late 20s through the 30s and 40s when radio was the dominant entertainment uh, uh, form and it was audio only. But that $100 million seems to be an awfully high price uh, for what it uh, might generate because, of course, the the money it's going to make is Spotify, which is uh, who gave him the deal, is hoping to get many, many more people to go to Spotify thanks to his presence there. And what's interesting about this is he will be there exclusively. Uh, otherwise, you know, podcasts you can see in many different venues. Uh, here, he's going to be at Spotify exclusively, which means a lot of people that listen to him may not be listening to him uh, uh, anymore if they're not on Spotify. And I think this might be the wave of the future as uh, people try to monetize uh, podcasts in new ways. All right. A lot of things you said there that I want to dive into. Um, let's go to the Spotify thing because until now, Joe Rogan has been on YouTube where he has, I think like eight and a half million subscribers. He's got a huge base, but I got wondering today as I was thinking about this, is he a product of YouTube or is it his style? Because YouTube is one of those places and you and I, and everyone listening has done this. You go on YouTube, you go to look up a video and half an hour later, you've gone down some rabbit hole that you have no idea how you got there and right, you're watching right. something that you had no intention of going into. And I'm thinking, okay, I could see how people would stumble onto him there. What about Spotify? Are people going to follow to a service that you, I think you still have to pay for Spotify and it's a more difficult thing to get to? You do. I mean, and that's what, where they're hoping that people will, people who do not pay for Spotify, they're hoping will go to Spotify uh, uh, and do that. Uh, you know, we saw uh, uh, similar things. Remember Howard Stern? He was on free yes. terrestrial radio, and then he would get into all kinds of trouble with various uh, indecency rules and all that uh, <laughs> kind of thing. And then he eventually went to uh, satellite. I think Spotify's idea is that Rogan now has enough followers. You pointed out on YouTube, uh, uh, on his YouTube channel, where he shows the interviews he does in video form, which, by the way, will stop. 
when this Spotify deal starts. Uh, that's got about somewhere around $8.5 million, as you pointed out. So I think the idea now is that enough people have stumbled onto Joe Rogan in the process that you just described that now when he is exclusively in one place, they're hoping a good percentage of those will actually deliberately follow him there. Um, uh, as opposed to the old way of discovering him in any of the various other venues he might have been at. Did did Howard Stern do, though, what they were hoping? Because, I mean, certainly they were hoping that a lot of people were going to subscribe, and I'm assuming a number have subscribed, but he got a, a deal like this or greater. Do you think that it paid off? Well, I don't have the numbers in front of me of the overall uh, success of Howard Stern's movement from terrestrial radio to uh, uh, to satellite. However, uh, he, of course, I, I think was never quite as central in the culture as he was uh, when he was on free radio, in that then he was accessible to anybody with a radio, uh, which was often uh, listened to in the car. Uh, so he, he but, but he did bring, obviously, a significant number of his uh, fans along with him, and his career didn't end. And Howard Stern really belonged on satellite radio. Howard Stern yeah. did things and wanted to do things that really did push the boundaries of the FCC's indecency rules. A lot of people who complain about TV and it's, uh, uh, you know, they're constantly trying to get uh, uh, them fined and everything. Most most broadcasting actually pretty much towed the line when it came to indecency, with a couple of exceptions. Howard Stern was one of those exceptions, so he found, I think, a much more appropriate home there uh, than he would have had on uh, than he had on on terrestrial radio. In the case of Rogan, who was doing podcasts uh, in, and YouTube, that wasn't so much an issue. Do you think this signifies that that? the world of podcasts is taking the next step into being a huge thing, or is this an outlier because Spotify is really trying to wedge into the consciousness? I mean, are we going to see more and more big time, as many big time podcasts as there are out there now making this kind of dough? I think we we are. I mean, this is a really, really high uh, figure, and not everybody is going to get uh, uh, get that kind of a payoff. But podcasts are already a big thing. I mean, there have been a number of uh, television shows, in fact, that have been uh, based on uh, podcasts. So uh, they are already a big thing. Serial, that was one of the real moments yes. in podcasting history that everybody was uh, talking about. If you had managed not to know what a podcast uh, was up until that point, you certainly had to know about it uh, uh, after that. Um, uh, and, and there is, I think, a sense that everybody is jockeying around for content. Netflix wants to keep making new shows so they've got enough content so that people will continue to subscribe, even when they lose some of their biggest things like Friends and The Office, which they're, they've lost. Uh, uh, you know, Hulu, Amazon Prime, all these streaming services want to make sure they've got plenty of content to keep people subscribing. And I think podcasts are one of the things that uh, are part of the business model of making sure that you've got people that will continue to pay for this stuff. And by having it exclusively in one place, uh, which a lot of other stuff already is, when you think of video, you know, Game of Thrones was on HBO, period. 
uh, although now they've got partnerships with uh, HBO Max on all kinds of other services. So uh, I think paying for what one thinks of as a big-ticket item, and Joe Rogan's podcast is a big-ticket item. He's got a lot of people who watch that. Uh, is another way to bringing traffic to your, uh, well, increasing your subscriber base. Yeah, you know, here's where... One of the things that's been beautiful about podcasts so far, and maybe it's only because it's in its infancy still, is the accessibility. It doesn't really cost you much to listen to a podcast in most cases. And the other thing is there's not a lot of advertising on there, so you can just listen and go right through it. I can see someone, okay, so Spotify wants Joe Rogan to come in and they're wanting the content as you describe, but you start doing more and more of these, you're going to have to start filling these with advertising. And doesn't that then undermine what the whole attraction of a podcast was? Well, yes, uh, advertising or subscription, one way or the other. Those are the two major ways of having income streams for uh, programming. You either make people pay a uh, monthly fee and have it advertised free. That's what uh, uh, premium cable was uh, way back in the day and still is. And that's, of course, what streaming services are now. Or you have it for free and you've got advertising. Or sometimes you can have a combination of both. Uh, you can pay extra on Hulu and get no ads, or you can pay less and uh, get the ads. Uh, NBC's Peacock is going to use that uh, two-tiered model as well. But you're right. The, the kind of exciting early days of podcasts when you could find these things in many different venues, uh, many of them were advertising-free. Most of it or a lot of it you could watch uh, completely without charge. Those were great days, and yes, this tendency is going to uh, show a move away from that. But let's face it, uh, you know, people want to generate income from these things. And if you've got yep. eight and a half million people following you on YouTube alone, uh, you, you know, they're, they're, everybody wants to monetize that. Uh, this, this isn't pro bono work, after all, at least not for most people that are doing it. It is, uh, it's sad in a sense because of what you just said. I mean, there's something appealing and attractive and fun about something that is still not fully professional, that it, that it, it, it's accessible to everybody and you or me or anyone could go out and make their own podcast and who knows how, you know, it might take off or might not take off. And it just, it seems as though we are watching the professionalization of this medium, which leads to the idea that, well, you know what, there's always... Robert, something that comes in to fill that void. And I have no idea what the follow-up to podcasting is for the people who now all of a sudden are not making millions and don't have thousands of dollars to produce these super-produced things. But something's going to come along. Although we, we should remember that this doesn't stop people who are making podcasts from doing no. it. Um, I mean, podcasts are still going to be around. And, and it is very hard. The, the, the podcasting environment is so crowded for that very reason everybody seems to have a podcast or two for that matter so it is hard to monetize uh, this because it is such a uh, a huge field there are so uncountable numbers of podcasts but that ability isn't going to go away people who still want to do uh, their own podcast and i would say over half of my students probably have their own podcast Joe Rogan getting a hundred million bucks uh, for uh, his podcast deal isn't going to stop them. It's not like the old days in television when there were only 
four channels per city, and all very, very few uh, people got to make programming for that. The, the podcasting environment will still say, stay open. And, of course, every podcaster that reads uh, this deal that Rogan just signed is going to dream of getting such a deal. Exactly. And for most of them, yeah. that will remain a dream. Yes, and you are correct. Uh, it's not going to stop it because now anyone who's heard a guy made a hundred billion bucks who just started this by chatting with people. Uh, you're right. It's going to only inspire more people to go. I can make a hundred million bucks. Whether my point was, it is becoming a field now, or it seems to be an area now where to pull a Wayne's World and just throw a basement microphone thing there and go with it it's going to be really really hard unlike the old days to make any kind of traction you're going to have to sound and possibly look but it's going to have to be really professionally done to stand out in that market well and i think the competition is already so big for podcasts that that's already the case when you look at the ones that actually really did raise to the level of penetrating the consciousness they tended to be pretty slickly put together uh, programs. Now, because it's audio only, you can do a pretty slick programming with a minimal amount of technology. Uh, I've heard a number of podcasts uh, by including uh, students who have, now they have the advantage of having access to some of the fancy equipment of a university, but uh, unlike a television show where you need lighting and uh, you know high-def cameras and all the rest of it, you can put together a pretty good-sounding audio-only thing for a fraction of the cost if you decide to add video to it. And even with video, people are learning through this coronavirus to become very accepting of bad lighting, bad background, no camera movement. Um, if, I mean, most people have already gotten used to that by watching YouTube, but now everybody on network television is seeing that kind of thing. So the, the old days of having to pay for what we used to call broadcast quality production in either audio or in video, uh, that, that has changed significantly in the past generation. True story. How many of those student podcasts have you listened to? <laughs> well, uh, those that send them to me, uh, I'm their professor, I have an obligation to uh, uh, listen to them, but you make a good point. There are only a very few podcasts that I will listen to past the first episode. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's very few that I'll listen to past the first few uh, few minutes. Um, but that's true of books and poems and symphonies and, uh, uh, and all the rest of it. And it's also true, you know, in the good old days, television was free. You had to pay the money to buy a TV set. You plugged it in. You unfurled the antenna. Uh, and it was, it was free. Now most people pay for their television, and an awful lot of people are paying a lot of money for their uh, monthly television. The good news is there's a lot more really fine programming out there than there was back in the day when you could get The Flying Nun and Mr. Ed for free. <laughs> great, great way to wrap it up. Great references. Robert Thompson, Director of the Blair Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time tonight. Thanks so much for asking me. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.